Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andy Musser. I serve as leader of our college age ministry. Uh, for those of you who do know me, I promise I am supposed to be up here right now. Like I said, though, uh, I lead our college age ministry along with my wife, Kayleen. Uh, we also teach fifth and sixth grade Sunday school, which, believe it or not, actually has been an immense help in preparing for this. Okay, I look at preparing for Sunday school similar to preparing for your taxes, right? There's a really good chance no one's going to ask any questions, no one's going to raise any eyebrows, but if they do and you're not prepared for it, you could be in a serious world of hurt, right? Now, today I want to talk about something that I think that we all experience and we all process. I want to talk about the different reactions that we can have towards sin in our lives and, in part, the role that guilt plays in this. How do you react when you're confronted by sin in your life? What does it lead you to? Does it lead you to defensiveness or justification? Does it lead you to minimizing it? Does it lead you to shifting blame? Does it lead you to self-loathing? Or does it lead you to the cross? Now, guilt is an emotional reaction. It's something that's experienced by just about everyone. And I think we can all agree that it's not a pleasant feeling, right? But what is it, really? Should it inform any of our decisions? Is it a reliable guide? I think that the answer to that is it depends. Now, the reason I want to touch on the role of guilt uh, is because I think it's often misunderstood. It can either be relied on too much or it can be suppressed. It can lead to repentance or it can lead to self-loathing. So guilt, it's an emotional response, right? And, and we experience it when we're confronted by our own wrongdoing or when we choose to confront our own wrongdoing, or as God calls it, sin. At least that's how guilt ought to work, right? Now, don't get me wrong, though. Guilt is not a feeling reserved for Christians or churchgoers, right? In fact, the feeling is so universal in nature that it's been the subject of numerous studies. One of the studies done that I found very interesting was in relation to the use of guilt in marketing or proposition advertisements, right? So like, vote no on Prop 1, vote yes on Prop 6, things like that. Okay, before I go on to the study, though, has anyone here ever heard someone say, oh, I don't want to go to church, they just make me feel guilty, or oh, I can't get behind Christianity, Christianity Christians just try to guilt you. Now, how many of those same people have given up driving gas cars, buying plastic bags, or shopping at certain stores because they've been made to feel guilty about it, right? It's interesting how the secular world likes to lay blame to Christianity for things of which they equally participate. Okay, now, in this particular study, researchers were able to determine a link or a correlation, right, between feelings of guilt uh, and what they call restorative behaviors. So restorative behaviors being things like uh, helping someone pick up their belongings after they've tripped or helping someone uh, with car trouble. Now, now, let me go back to an explanation of what an example of using guilt in marketing would look like. Right, you've probably seen stop smoking ads, right? The, the, the ones that speak of the horrors of lung cancer, that's more an example of using fear. Now, the ones that talk about the damage done to other people by secondhand smoke, that's an example of using guilt, right? Or more recently, maybe you've seen the stop smoking ads that talk about the atrocities of microplastics, right? The, the little piece of the cigarette that you just toss on the ground. No, people toss on the ground and how bad they are for the environment. In both those examples, the narrator is trying to ply the smoker with guilt as a means of kicking the habit. That's an example of using guilt to try to stop a perceived negative behavior, right? It can also be used to encourage a perceived good behavior. For example, if you're selling dental floss, instead of talking about the merits of dental floss, you talk about how bad of a parent you would be if you don't floss your kid's teeth. And nobody wants to feel like a bad parent, especially in a way that other people might see it. You know? So now that we get an idea of how marketing, uh, how guilt is used in marketing, let's get back to one of these studies. 
So in one of these studies, uh, individuals were made to believe that they were put in a setting where they were made to believe that they broke a photographer's very expensive camera. Now, these same people were then watched in a different setting where someone was staged to be walking around with their backpack left wide open. Okay? And they wanted to see what would happen. Now, the people who felt like they broke the camera were more likely to go over to the person with the bag and say, hey, your bag's open, you probably should zip it up. And if the, the person who owned the camera was also there, they were even more likely to do it. Basically, if the person that they had harmed was watching them, it increased the likelihood of them acting out these restorative behaviors. So, I mean, basically, if I tripped Pastor Chuck on the way out of church, and if I felt bad about it, I might, it, it, that might make me then feel more likely to help someone. Now, if Pastor Chuck is watching, I would be even more inclined to help these people. Now, also, the research seemed to indicate that if you had harmed yourself, you would feel guilt less intensely than if you had harmed someone else. Now, since this study was done in the relation of using guilt in a marketing setting, they really wanted to know how much guilt was enough and how much was too much. Maybe you see where this is going. But what they determined that if there was too much guilt in the messaging, then it would result in complete rejection. The way they phrased it was that people would feel a perceived threat to their freedom, right? And then they would act in a way that was contrary to the messaging. I think that we can all relate to this to a certain degree, especially of those of you with strong-willed children, right? Don't touch that. Well, I wasn't going to, but now that you told me not to, I really, really want to. <laughs> you know, you know, okay? Now, this last item, I don't think we needed a scientist to tell us, and it's that guilt is uncomfortable. Nobody likes feeling guilt, right? And it creates in us an, a desire to get out or escape from that feeling. Now, there's certainly more complexities to these studies, uh, perceived beliefs, uh, perceived amount of damage done to the other people, but I think we can all get the idea of what I'm talking about here. So what, are the, what does research and experience tell us about guilt? Guilt is unpleasant. When guilt is experienced as a result of harming someone else, it is felt more intensely than when you have harmed yourself. Someone feeling guilt wants to stop feeling it. It can encourage these restorative behaviors, or it can result in complete rebellion. All of that was my very long-winded way of saying that guilt feels bad and nobody likes feeling it, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, I love that one song that makes me feel guilty. Or like, I'm going to go kick some puppies because, man, the feeling I get afterwards, the one that makes me feel bad about things, is like awesome, right? Ultimately, though, I think we can all agree that guilt is necessary. It's much like pain, right? It should alert us to a problem that, if not addressed, could lead to something worse, like an infected wound, if left untreated, could lead to amputation or even death. The problem is, though, that we don't always feel guilt when we should. And other times we do feel it, and we shouldn't. The presence or absence of guilt does not indicate righteousness. What believers need to understand is how to control this emotion appropriately, how to understand its source, whether good or bad, and how to respond to it. Thankfully, as Christians, we have the guesswork taken out for us. God has revealed to us the right and wrong ways to live. He has revealed to us what is wrong, what sin is. So let's take a look at what Scripture has to say about sin and guilt. Of course, Scripture doesn't address the guilt you feel as a parent beating your kids in Monopoly or when you accidentally let slip that you really didn't like the dinner your wife made you. I would never do that. That said, we're going to be reading through several different verses, and you're welcome to follow along. I'm going to be moving kind of quickly, so I've been told. Um, so I'll have them up on the screen as well. I think it's important that we start by defining what sin is, and then we move on from there. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning 
also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a violation of God's law. To sin literally means to miss the, the mark. Now, of course, we're talking about God's law here, which does happen to coincide often with, with worldly law, but not always. Now, whether it coincides or not, or whether we agree with it or not, we do have to concede that God gets to decide what sin is. Now, now that we know what sin is, we need to know who sins. So let's go through these verses. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58.3, Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us sin. It's unavoidable. It is ingrained in us. I find this encouraging and discouraging. It's discouraging because we know it's part of the human condition. It's inescapable. There's nothing that we can do of our own accord to stop. Now, it's encouraging because in that same hand, there's nothing that we can do by ourselves. Now, that doesn't excuse our sin, but that should direct us, should direct our eyes towards someone who can help us conquer it, someone who can help us overcome sin. So now that we know what sin is and who sins, well, you probably didn't need me to tell you that, but in case you did, now you know. What's the result of sin? Okay, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For everyone, death is the result of sin. When sin first entered the world, with it came physical death, but more importantly, spiritual death. Without Christ, we are spiritually dead, and we are condemned for an eternity in hell with the wrath of God directed toward us. But we also see that if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are saved from this particular result. But we also know that Christians still sin. So what's the result for Christians who still sin? Well, we see in John, 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. For believers, sin results in a barrier in our relationship with God. It does not cost us our salvation. It does not result in spiritual death. It does harm our relationship with God. That harm, though, can be undone, so bear with me a little longer. Now, you've probably heard that it was said that all sins are equal. What does that really mean, though? I, I think this is often misunderstood. We get this concept, at least in part, from James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it, right? Whether it's murder or, or angry thoughts. All sins, sins are equal, but some have a larger impact on you and the relationships around you. Right? All sins are equal in God's eyes in that any sin results in spiritual death, only some, something only remedied by a Savior. So some look to this verse or concept to say how unfair it is, like killing someone is not the same as having angry thoughts, right? Of course, that's not exactly what's being said here. They're not the same thing. Obviously, they have different results. They're going to impact your life in a far different way. But we have to remember that when we sin, we are violating God's law, okay? So let me give an example. Before my wife and I got married, we had to apply for a marriage license, right? You go to the recorder's office, and you get this form. It's partially filled out. Then you take that to the ceremony, and after the officiant marries you, he signs it, uh, you sign it, uh, the witnesses sign it, and then you take it back and you file it with the recorder's office. Well, when we were getting the form initially from the recorder, they told us that if there were any errors on it, they would reject it. And because I looked especially dense, I still do, they proceeded to explain what any errors meant, right? So what they said was, if you misspell your address, that's an error. If you put the wrong number in your address, you scratch it out and then you write it in there, that's an error. If you put a big red X across the whole thing, that's an error. Now, if you had two documents in front of you, one with a misspelled address and one with a big red X, they're not going to look the same, right? One looks 
basically fine, and one is obviously flawed. But under a scrutinous eye, both of those are going to be rejected. Sin is just like that form. Oh, and obviously it all had to be in pen. You couldn't erase anything. Sin is just like that form. We all have, whether you have lustful thoughts or a torrid affair, I've made a mistake, and under God's scrutinous eye, I did not meet the standard, and if left alone, I would be rejected. Okay, but what about thought life? If I don't act upon it, is it still sin? Uh, Matthew 5, 21, 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. There's another potty word, you can't say you fool. You have heard, now let's go down to 27, 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Even the thoughts that we entertain can be sinful. And I think that this is where a lot of us fail. I mean, I know I have. I'm not trying to pretend I'm perfect. It's especially easy in today's culture, which is so bent toward doing whatever makes you feel happy. As long as you're not hurting anyone, or as long as it seems like you're not hurting anyone, right? That's our culture's gold standard for what constitutes acceptable behavior is whether they think someone, and that someone includes animals, was harmed as a result. It sounds good, right? But I think there's some more things to consider. Are we including ourselves as a possible victim? Uh, who gets to decide if someone was harmed? Is it up to us? Are we the dictators of morality? Do we have to vote on it? Do we have to reach a consensus before we can say, yes, that was wrong? Or does God get to decide what is right and what is wrong? Now, whether we fully understand the why behind God's law, we have to accept that our perfect creator does understand it. Ultimately, though, I think we could break down all of these supposedly victimless sins and identify who the victim is, but even if we can't, when we sin, we sin first against God. Every sin we commit is first an offense against our creator. And I want to linger on this for a moment. We need to understand and recognize that when we sin, even if we cannot see the results of it, even if we think that no one was harmed, we sin first against our Lord. Our culture, though, is very self-focused. It likes to encourage the idea of embracing your feelings, embracing your emotions, sinful or not. And whether you're a believer or not, you can be influenced by the culture of the world. It's also more difficult to control thoughts and actions, I think. And if anyone here has ever been anxious or depressed, you can attest to the difficulty of it. With sinful thoughts, I do think it's a little different. We do have the ability to either entertain them, let them run rampant, or turn them over to God. Um, please do not think that I'm saying it's easy, but God has sent the Holy Spirit to help us if we choose to listen to him. What helps me is to stop thinking that I can rise above these things on my own and instead that I can be lifted above them. If we try to fight sinful thoughts on our own will based on our own grit and determination, we'll fail every time. Okay, what can help us be sensitive to sin uh, and help us overcome it? Does everyone experience guilt? Well, we know that believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We were here in Hebrews 10, 16 to 17. This is a quote from the Old Testament, actually. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, those days being the coming of the Messiah, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As believers, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is described as a helper. If we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, then we have just that. 
And one way that the Holy Spirit helps us is by convicting us of our sin. This is when the guilt we feel can lead us to righteousness. If we're sensitive to that guilt and understand it's the Holy Spirit convicting us of a violation of God's law. However, it is possible to suppress the Spirit. We can do this when we try to uh, do things on our own strength, when we we choose not to rely on Him, or when we choose to suppress Him because we just want to do what we want to do. The Holy Spirit is not going to force you to act righteously, but He will help you. He will enable you. So that's good for believers. What about unbelievers? So we see here in Romans 2, 14 to 16, for when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Christ Jesus. So this isn't written to believers. This is unbelievers. Here, this is what we would call our sense of morality or conscience. That does not mean that our sense of morality is incorruptible or perfect, however. After Adam and Eve sinned and sin and death entered the world, God's perfect creation had become corrupted. And as a result of it, we cannot rely solely on our own morality. That said, everyone does have a sense of right and wrong, corruptible as it may be. And if you have a sense of right and wrong, you can experience guilt. But what does an unbeliever do about guilt they have, especially if they're unable to reconcile the harm they've caused? What do you do with guilt that can't be forgiven? How do you heal? And I think that God doesn't want anyone to have to experience guilt, the pain of it, but he can use that to draw people to him. So we can see that no one has an excuse to not know right and wrong, but our morality without the Holy Spirit is insufficient. As we've seen throughout Scripture, when people choose to turn away from God, their conscience becomes influenced by the society uh, based on culturally acceptable norms. We see in Judges, after Israel has repeatedly turned away from God to idol worship. Judges 17.6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then again, Judges 21.25, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Regardless of our conscience or even our feelings towards sin, sin is unchanging. Right and wrong may not always be clear to us, but they are clear to God. A right answer always exists. Because of this, everyone's going to be confronted by their sin to one degree or another. So let's recap what Scripture has to say about sin and our sensitivity to it. So first, we are all born into sin. It's inescapable. Every sin, big or small, results in spiritual death and need of a Savior and spiritual separation from God. We cannot erase our sin. It leaves a mark, big or small. Everyone has some sensitivity to sin, believers and unbelievers alike. Believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we can choose to suppress or be sensitive to. Unbelievers have the law imprinted on their hearts, but they can have their hearts or conscience swayed by society. Keeping all this in mind and understanding the role that guilt plays in our response to sin, I want to cover several different responses that we often can and do have towards sin, as well as a biblical response. Now, this is obviously not going to be super comprehensive, uh, and it's not perfect, but hopefully you recognize what it is that I'm getting at. Uh, So let's begin. We're going to begin with the wrong ways to respond to sin, and then we're going to see how to confront that. So when confronted by your sin, where does it lead you? I say confronted by. Now, I think that oftentimes this confrontation is going to come from guilt or conviction by the Holy Spirit. It's that emotional pain that alerts us that something is wrong. Our hearts are in danger and we need to address it. If we keep in mind that our thought life can be sinful, then there's a very good chance that only us and God are even going to know about it. And so 
we're going to be confronted either by our, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or our innate moral conscience. If we are informing our conscience with God's revealed moral law, and I don't just mean praying to see what's right and wrong, but also reading his word to see what he has specifically revealed to us on the subject then we can trust that our guilty conscience is directing us correctly. If, however, we allow society to dictate our morality or influence us, we may feel guilty when we should not. In case you weren't aware, Christianity, and I mean true doctrine, teaching, Christ-following Christianity, is not gaining in popularity. Much of what the Bible teaches is very contrary to popular opinion. Likewise, if your conscience is influenced by culture, there's a higher likelihood that you will not feel guilty when you should simply because society at large has decided that the behavior in question is acceptable. Of course, we can be confronted by things outside of our conscience, right? That might be uh, fellow believers, that might be family, it might even be the law. But after that confrontation, how will guilt or conviction guide your response? So I tried to pick responses that I thought were very common, and these are things that I have responded in this way in my life and even during my Christian walk. And the examples I'm going to give are not mutually exclusive. It's not like you're only one or the other. They, they kind of flow between each other. So with all that, let's examine some of these responses, and then we'll end with how to confront them. First, does it lead you to defensiveness or justification? I think that oftentimes, when we're made to realize that we've done something wrong, it's so easy to try to defend uh, what we, the decisions we've made or rationalize why it wasn't a sin at all in this case. Maybe asking someone to pay you in cash so you don't have to report on your taxes. Super easy to justify, right? Like sales tax alone is more than I should pay in taxes. So why am I going to report this? Why is this such a natural response? I think if we look back at the way we experience guilt, we can understand it a bit better. It's an unpleasant emotion and we want to get out from it. But we also want to continue doing what we want to do. So one of the ways to do this is acting as though what you did wasn't even wrong to begin with. Okay, if we can convince ourselves that what we did wasn't wrong, then we can escape the negative feeling while continuing in the sinful action. Or I go beyond just trying to convince myself, and I try to convince everyone around me. I think that we see a big push right now to legitimize sin in the world. Pick a movement, transgenderism, abortion, self-love. If you look at the people that make up these groups, I think you'll find a large portion that hope that if they convince enough people that what they're doing isn't just okay, but that it should be embraced and celebrated, that they can override their basic sense of morality. Now, this is especially true if you don't believe in a creator, right? If you don't believe in a creator, then where does our sense of morality come from? Well, it has to come from society. So all you have to do is convince enough of the population that what you're doing is acceptable and good and wonderful, and then it's an attempt to legitimize our sin. But remember... The studies even show that when a person feels too much guilt, it results in outright rebellion. This is not a new concept either. Let's turn to an example in Scripture to see what this looks like. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 15, 9 to 22. Let me set the scene here. Saul, the king of Israel, was commanded by God to go and completely destroy the Amalekites and all of the animals, livestock. Don't, don't save anything. Well, Saul has chosen to spare the king a gag, and then also he keeps the choicest of the animals. Now, this was a common practice in biblical times. The conquering nation would take the riches and the livestock, and oftentimes they would even enslave the citizens of the conquered nation. So this is very clearly Saul is acting in a way that's acceptable based on the society they lived in. But Samuel, a prophet of God, was now sent to confront Saul on this. So here we, we pick it up in verse 9. Let me, uh, let's see here. Why then, 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Instead, you loudly rushed upon the spoils and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, for I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have completely destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choicest of things designated for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than a sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Even when God's prophet confronts Saul, he tries to defend and rationalize why it was okay. Oh, I was saving the best animals to sacrifice to God. Now, to me, this seems like a bald-faced lie. But I think that when Saul, trying to rationalize it to Samuel, probably started to believe it a little bit himself. Either way, though, whether Saul was just acting according to societal norms or whether he was truly saving the animals to sacrifice to God, he disobeyed God. And Samuel rebukes him. To obey is better than a sacrifice. To God, sin is reprehensible. And to disobey God is to sin. Here's another very common response, minimizing. Again, this is, we want to avoid the negative feelings while continuing to do what we want to do. This at times can seem almost like justifying it or rationalizing it, but the subtle difference is that we accept that what we did is wrong. We just don't think it's a big deal. Maybe this could be gossiping or pornography or disregarding some seemingly trivial law. No matter what it is, we can tell ourselves, well, yeah, it's wrong, but is it really that wrong? I mean, it could be way worse. I know other people who do way worse than me, right? So it's not that bad. And I mean, I'm not really hurting anyone. I think that realistically, if we look at all these things, we can realize that we only think we aren't hurting anyone. And that's because the people that we're hurting just don't know about it. Even that aside, we have to remember that whenever we sin, we sin first against God. And even the smallest infraction can result in spiritual death or separation in our relationship with God. Does it lead you to shifting blame? Here is an example where, again, we can accept that it was wrong, but it wasn't really our fault. Did you lust over that person? Well, yeah, but look how they're dressed. It'd be impossible not to. Or did you talk badly about that guy? Yeah, but he's a jerk. He totally deserved it. Or I only did it because my friend kept telling me I should do it. This is a response we can trace back to the beginning of time. Let's turn to Genesis 3, 8 to 13. All right, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. After the very first sin was committed, the people that are probably as close to perfect as you could be ultimately did not own up to their own sin. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, but ultimately God did not excuse any of it, all right? So does it lead you to confession without repentance? Have you ever sat through an especially convicting sermon or, or read something that really touched you in, your, in a way that made you realize how sinful you are? Have you ever experienced regret or sorrow for your actions that you've committed and walked away confessing it to God only to return back to the very same thing. There are times where we are just so moved by something because of the setting, the atmosphere, the exceptional eloquence of the speaker. The overall experience has a way of moving us. But once that feeling wears off, we return to our sin. It's very easy to do. It's very easy to feel conviction at church or when reading scripture or listening to a sermon. But if that conviction stops at the church gates, then we're heading down the wrong path. 
Does it lead you to self-loathing? Now, guilt and shame, guilt is, can seem very similar to shame and self-loathing, but ultimately the focus is different. Shame and self-loathing are inward-facing, right? It's when we recognize that what we did is wrong, but instead of repenting, we begin to feel worthless, helpless, or hopeless. We think that if everyone knew what we'd done, they'd think we were trash. Maybe they'd think our whole Christian life was a lie. And I think that this is an area where Satan can really get to work, right? In our thought lives, trying to suppress us. If you regret something so much, but you feel like there's nothing you could ever possibly do to fix it or take that pain away, it can lead to depression. It can lead to anxiety, becoming withdrawn. Have you ever felt like if you walked into church, your heart would just explode, right? Have you ever listened to a message and felt like the pastor was speaking straight to you, like he knew what you'd done and it was so bad it deserved a 45 to 50 minute sermon? This is a very dangerous path. This can affect believers and non-believers, but in different ways. Non-believers, they may feel that if God knew what they had done, that he couldn't even offer salvation if he wanted to. You're too far gone. Or that he wouldn't even be able to offer them salvation if he wanted to. Like, ah, sorry, you're out of my grasp, man. Believers, they may feel, though, as if everyone would believe they were a counterfeit Christian only pretending to love God. It can lead to questioning your salvation. It can lead to walking away from ministry. It can lead to even walking away from church. Now, I know that I've felt many of these things before. It's not difficult to let guilt turn to shame and self-loathing. In some ways, it almost feels right. If I am self-deprecating enough, maybe that punishment will be enough to redeem me. Now, there's one example of this in Scripture that I think takes this to the darkest uh, version of it. For this, we're going to turn to one of the most infamous characters in the Bible, Judas Iscariot, the man who betrays Jesus. So let's turn to Matthew 27, 35. Judas saw that they had decided to kill Jesus. He was the one who had handed him over. When he saw what happened, he was very sorry for what he had done. So he took the 30 silver coins back to the priests and the older leaders. Judas said, I sinned. I handed over to you an innocent man to be killed. The Jewish leaders answered, we don't care. That's a problem for you, not us. So Judas threw the money into the temple. Then he went out from there and hanged himself. If we let guilt turn into self-loathing, it can lead to depression so dark it ends in suicide. By no means do I think that suicide is an unforgivable sin, but I know that it is a sin and that God doesn't wish that on anyone. In this example, we see that Judas was sorry. He did regret what he had done. It says he was very sorry for what he had done. He even tried to seek help from the Jewish leaders, but there was none to be offered. And instead of giving his sin to God, instead of confessing it to the Lord, he put his sin on a pedestal above God. And when we turn to self-loathing, instead of repentance, we elevate our sin above God. We make our sin greater than God. Now here's the last response. Does it lead you to the cross? Now the steps to this, this is the biblical response, the steps to this in theory are easy, but they can be much more difficult in practice. First, we have to recognize and accept that we have sinned. We, as we've established, this can be painful. It means we've either been confronted by the Holy Spirit or innate uh, moral conscience. Second, we confess that sin to God. We acknowledge that it was wrong. We do not justify it. We do not minimize it. We do not shift blame. We accept that we missed the mark. Now, third, we ask God to forgive us. We give that sin, that guilt and shame to the Lord of all creation and understand that he will forgive us. He will cleanse us. He is more powerful than our sin. He is greater than our shame. Finally, we turn away from that sin. We try not to return to that very same thing. And we may fail. And if we do, we start over. Repentance is forward-looking, right? God does not keep a tally mark 
of how many times you've sinned to say if forgiveness is still warranted. Or maybe you've run out of get-out-of-jail-free cards now. If that were the case, none of us would make it. Okay. Sometimes, though, we also need to mend relationships with those around us. When we sin, it doesn't always just hurt us and God. Sometimes it hurts other people. Now, this can be a very difficult step because now we're dealing with imperfect people and their forgiveness is not guaranteed. Right now, God calls us to forgive everyone, but ultimately, it's God's forgiveness that sets us free. We read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of our own power, there is nothing we can do to correct our sin. There's nothing we can do to erase it or undo it. Sin is uncompromising in this way. Once committed, we are powerless to correct it. We can try to mend relationships. We can try to fix things. But without God, the mark of sin will remain. But God sent his only son to die for us that we may have our sins washed away. Now, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4, or first 1, 4 through 8, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and in its opening, he offers them hope. Uh, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to reread part of that. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it was not all sunshine and roses. He, he issues corrections as well. We know they're not living perfectly, but we know that they're in Christ, at least the people to whom Paul's addressing the letter. We see, though, that while they're not living perfectly, that sin was still present in the church, Paul says they will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the day of judgment, they will be blameless. We will be blameless, not because we are without blame, not because we kept the law perfectly, but because of the grace and mercy that God freely gives to those who put their faith and trust in Christ. How freeing is that? So what do we do with all this? Okay, I spent a lot of time talking about the different ways we choose to respond to sin, about where we look to remove our guilt, but what do we do with it? Please don't think I'm up here telling you I would never react in any of these ways or I can't believe it if you have. I'm more speaking from experience. Even Paul says in Romans, For I do not understand what I am doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law. The law is good, but now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul poignantly states the struggle that we all face, what we know is right and what our flesh desires. We all struggle, myself included, and part of that struggle isn't just avoiding sin, but it's confronting it when we do sin. We need to be able to identify these responses in ourselves so we can know how best to address them. We need to recognize what we are prone to do when confronted by sin. It's like a physical therapist. Has anyone ever been to physical therapy for a pain that's not from like an obvious injury, right? Like you don't even know what's causing it, and so you go there, and the physical therapist will work with you not just to identify what the injury is, but they'll also work with you to figure out what it is that's causing that pain. What things do you need to avoid? And then they will develop a routine to help you strengthen the muscles or whatever it may be in order to help the pain go away, but they'll also try to help you modify your daily routine in a way that's going to avoid exacerbating that pain. Now, like physical therapy, in order to overcome sin and temptation, we of course need to identify if we need to modify our routines to help us avoid sin altogether. Right? This may mean staying off certain websites or the internet entirely. Maybe you have to avoid certain places 
or in some cases, even certain friends. Now, in addition, though, to avoiding, trying to avoid sin altogether, because we're never going to succeed in that, we need to also identify the responses that we fall into, the wrong responses, and we need to be able to correct them. So if we start to see ourselves going down the wrong path, here are some things to keep in mind, some ways to course correct. First and foremost, we must work on our relationship with God, okay? And how better to do that than by reading his word, what he has revealed directly to us about him and how to live best. Second, we need to be in prayer, right? Through prayer and scripture reading, we can resensitize ourselves to the Holy Spirit. If we are in Christ, he can set us free. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Okay, so now we're going to go back through these different responses and identify how we can, one, identify them and also correct. So if we find ourselves trying to defend or justify it, we find ourselves feeling guilty about something or accused of some wrongdoing, we must first stop and consider, is there any truth to it? Not based on what your friends say or what the internet says. We don't want to rush to justify away any guilt. We want to know, what does God have to say on this? If you're really interested in following Christ, we must first turn to what he has revealed on the subject. But we must also remember that there are no instances in Scripture where God has condoned sin. There are times where God has used a person's sin to further his goal, but never where he has endorsed it. There is no ends justify the means mentality. When it comes to sin, it's either right or it is wrong. If we can accept this, then we can finally move through the stages of confession, forgiveness, and repentance. Minimizing it. With this, we just need to acknowledge that regardless of how seemingly small a sin it is. It's still a sin, and even if we cannot see the tears in the eyes of those we have harmed, we must know that we have sinned first against God, and that every sin harms our relationship with God. If we can recognize that regardless of the apparent severity of our transgressions, that they are transgressions nonetheless, then we can finally turn them over to God. Shifting blame. Okay, again, here we have to understand that even if we blame someone else for our sin, even if someone really did truly influence our behavior, we all have the ability to resist sin. We see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind, and God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. As hard as it may seem, there is always a way to escape temptation. Whatever it is that you did was not some special case. God would not examine it and go, okay, you know what? That guy was acting like a total jerk, so he deserved it. In this case, it's not a sin. I'm going to note the exception. Do some people dress provocatively? Yes, but you can still choose to not lust. Do some people cut you off on the freeway? Yes, but you don't have to hate them. Okay, if we can accept ownership for those things, then we can finally give it to God, okay? What about confession without repentance? If you find yourself moved by the words of a sermon or inspired from attending a conference or retreat, but the moment that that feeling dissipates, you return to sin, then try to recognize that our faith is more than a feeling. It's more than an emotion. It's good to be moved by these things. The the words of a sermon may resonate within you because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Try to be sensitive to that. And if you feel most inspired when you're surrounded by the things and people of God, then surround yourself with them more. Right? Join a men's or women's small group. Read your Bible daily. Get involved in a ministry. Pray without ceasing. The more involved you are, the more likely you are to develop follow-through and allow for confession to turn to true repentance. 
Now, I know I've been here before, leaving church, feeling like the pastor was speaking straight to me, and I felt the Holy Spirit convicting me. But as time dragged on, and I was further removed from church, and maybe I wasn't in a small group, or I was too tired to go, or I just didn't enjoy being convicted, and I felt uncomfortable around the things of God. I can say I have felt these things before, and I have both succumbed, and Christ has also helped me to overcome. So all that to say, God's word and fellow believers can help support you in your walk. About self-loathing, it can be very difficult to pull yourself out of shame and self-loathing brought on by guilt. It can, really, it can be really easy to find our value in our virtue, but the moment that we violate that virtue, we have then in turn diminished our value in our own eyes. But it's not so with God. We are not, uh, our value doesn't come from the things we do, the things we say, or our accomplishments. We have value as our position, as image bearers of God. That feeling of unworthiness, it can invade you and it can suppress your hope, it can suppress your joy. We also need to understand, though, that none of us are worthy of redemption. None of us. But we also have God's promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So if you're caught in shame and self-loathing, I want to offer you these reminders. There is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Nothing can take you from God's hand. He does not want you to be stuck in shame and self-loathing. He loves you and he wants you to bring your guilt and shame to him and lay it at the foot of the cross. We read in Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the offense would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's love, power, and forgiveness are greater than our ability to sin. In addition to these things, getting involved in a men's or women's small group of, is of immense help in aiding our walk. Now, you want men or women who aren't afraid to step out and issue correction, right? So it may not be your best buddy to begin with. Now, they're separate. We have men's and women's groups. They're separated by gender for a reason. Men and women struggle with different things. And in order for true growth to occur, you need to have open and free discourse. And please don't think that these groups are filled with self-righteous men and women who think they're perfect. No, we, as Christians, we all need to accept that we are all fallen. We are all sinful. They're just seeking to encourage you, not to shame you. For those of you who have not put your faith and trust in Christ, maybe some of what I'm saying still sounds familiar. If you recognize that there's sin in your life that you've been struggling with, something you can't seem to overcome on your own, or maybe you've been contending with seemingly inescapable guilt, there is good news. There is someone who can forgive us of all of our sins, someone who can take away all the guilt, all the shame, someone who loves us and wants to set us free. Those things we've done for which we alone cannot atone, there can be peace in Christ. Romans 5, 6-9, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you recognize wrong behaviors in your life, that you want to change, but you haven't been able to on your own. Or maybe you've been struggling with guilt that's brought you to depression or anxiety. Know that there can be victory in Christ, that you can lay your sin and guilt at Jesus' feet. We know that if anyone puts their faith and trust in God, that we can be reconciled to him. So if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and you'd like to today, I want to give you the opportunity to do so. So I want to ask everyone to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just create a little separation between you and the person next to you. You don't need to say anything out loud. God knows your heart. You can say in the quietness of your own heart, God, I know that I have sinned. 
I know that sin separates me from you. I know that I have done things that I should not have done and that I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God, that he lived a perfect life and died for my sins. And then three days later, he rose, proving that he is God. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you've already said that prayer, but you know that you've been reacting to sin in the wrong way, that you have sin in your life that you haven't given over to him, now's the chance to give it over to him. You can say, Lord, I am a sinner, and I know that I need your help to overcome the temptations I face every day. I need your help to confront that sin in my life. I know what I have done is wrong. Please forgive me and help me to act the right way. In Christ's name, amen.